Over the last several weeks, we've been working our way through a series of letters that Jesus dictates to the Apostle John to be sent to seven different cities located in a Roman province known as Asia Minor. Now, before we work our way, verse by verse, through the sixth letter, addressed to the church of Philadelphia, let me just begin by establishing, as we have with the others, kind of a profile of this ancient city. The context uh, is helpful. Constructed in 189 B.C. by Yemenes II, and if I butchered that, sorry, I'm not ancient Greek, the town was given the name Philadelphia, or, or literally Greek for the city of brotherly love. In fact, the name was intended to commemorate the love that this king had for his younger brother, his successor. The city itself was small, but even then Philadelphia was incredibly prosperous. And the reason is that she was located along an important trade route that connected the east with the west. Philadelphia was in many ways the the final stop before you entered the more uncivilized areas beyond the empire. While she was under Greek control, the city was known to be an outpost, or in in some ways a missionary center for the spread of Hellenistic culture. By the end of the first century, when Jesus is writing, Philadelphia was known by the Romans as being the gateway to the east. Well, we understand this letter was written to an actual congregation of believers. We should discuss what movement within church history Philadelphia represents. Though the Protestant church, represented by the church in Sardis, had been successful in bringing about much-needed theological reforms. As we noted last Sunday, by and large, though, the Reformation failed to initiate any type of real spiritual revival. Like Not only did the state church remain, but the legacy of the Reformation, if we're being honest, was that it left the church kind of dead and lifeless, a lifeless type of orthodoxy. In truth, Protestantism fell short in returning the church to her original commission. Now, what do I mean by the original commission? Before he was ascending to heaven, Jesus left his his followers some very simple instructions. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore... And make disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Historically, what we define today as mainline Protestant denominations ended up being so entirely self-consumed that they had no interest in being missionary-minded, others-focused at all. They failed in the Great Commission. And yet, as is typically the case, there were two significant historical developments that would shift the church's inward perspective outward. The first development occurred during the late 15th and 16th centuries and is today known as the Age of Discovery and the hopes of procuring untapped resources, wealth, across the Atlantic Ocean. Both Portugal and Spain invested heavily in nautical exploration. For example... In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, discovering the Americas. Six years later, in 1498, Vascaso da Gama was the first to successfully sail from Europe around the Horn of Africa to India. 
no doubt, not to be un, undone by their, or outdone by their uh, Spanish and Portuguese rivals, the English got in on the action, immediately setting to the seas in hopes of establishing colonies, trade networks of their own. As I'm sure you know, it was during the late 16th century that we saw the rise of the mighty British Empire. Not only would Britain colonize the Americas, but she would become the largest empire in history. The British Empire had a, had a footprint, not just in America, but in Africa, India, China, Australia, even New Zealand. By 1922, the British Empire held sway over 458 million people, which at the time was roughly one-fifth of the world's population. At the peak of power, Britain was known as the empire on which the sun never sets. As a result of this age of discovery, not only did the Protestant churches that dominated the continent of Europe awaken to the existence of now a world beyond their borders, most of which had very, very little to no exposure of the gospel, but the British Empire single-handedly provided the infrastructure by which missionaries could be sent and travel around the globe. One historian makes an interesting connection between the times of the apostles and this age of church history, writing, quote, What Roman roads did for the spread of the gospel during the first century, the British naval routes accomplished during the 17th and 18th centuries. And yet the tipping point, and the second of these historical developments coming after the Reformation, came with what was known as the First Great Awakening, which took Protestant Europe and British America by storm in the 1730s and 40s. As a result of, of this fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the impassioned preaching of, of the Bible by men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, the Protestant church not only recognized her own need to return to a genuine relationship with Jesus, but as a result, the church was stirred anew with a heart to reach the lost with the gospel, the lost across the world. Enter a simpleton, a British cobbler by the name of William Carey, who is deeply moved by the teachings of Jonathan Edwards. In the early 1800s, Carey would boldly take the gospel to the continent of India. He'd end up becoming known as really the father of modern missions. His perspective was simple. He said, to know the will of God, we need an open Bible and an open map. Carey would later write in his journal, he would write, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong, but amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God and his word is true. Though the superstition of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the examples of the Europeans a thousand times worse, Though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the sure word, would rise above every obstruction and every trial. God's cause will triumph. In the mid-1800s, another Brit by the name of Hudson Taylor would take the gospel to China. During the 51 years that he spent in the Orient, he and his organization, which was known as the China Inland Mission, would be responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country. With time, Taylor would start 125 schools 
and be directly responsible for some 18,000 Christian converts. Amazingly, the China Inland Mission would establish more than 300 missionary stations in all 18 provinces of China with more than 500 natives helping in the work. While there is no doubt this period of church history is characterized by the missionaries who carried the gospel into uncharted parts of the world using the trade routes of the British Empire. I mentioned Carey and Hudson. David Livingston's another, his heart for, for Africa. But it should be noted how the Great Awakening would also produce an evangelical emphasis in the Western world as well. This was largely brought about by a return to biblical exposition and preaching. In the mid-1800s, Charles Spurgeon would pastor the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. His contemporary D.L. Moody would preach with a similar passion and zeal and tenacity for the lost at his Chicago Avenue Church. William Arnott heralded God's world tirelessly in Scotland. And in the late 1800s, Andrew Murray would evangelize his native South Africa. As you entered the 1900s, these great men of the faith would give way to others. Men like J. Oswald Sanders, A.W. Tozer, Billy Sunday, J. Vernon McGee, Billy Graham, Chuck Smith. Like the persecuted church of Smyrna, the Roman Catholic church of Thyatira, and the Protestant church of Sardis, this missional movement, represented by the Philadelphian church, it remains very much alive and active today, right now. In fact, any Protestant church that faithfully preaches God's Word, relies on the power of the Holy Spirit, and possesses a deep commitment to reaching the lost world for Jesus, ends up being addressed in Jesus' sixth letter to this church of Philadelphia. So let's dive into the letter. We're going to work through it verse by verse. Verse 7 of Revelation 3. We read into the angel or pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write these things as he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. And for starters, one of the interesting things about Jesus' letter to the church of Philadelphia and this missional period is that like the persecuted church of Smyrna, Jesus has absolutely nothing negative to say about this church. Zero, zip, zilch, nada. Zero criticisms. Instead, because Jesus found this church to be faithful. Faithful to him and faithful to her calling. The letter is chocked full of promises and incredible blessings. This fact may actually explain why the description of Jesus is so unique. You see, unlike the other letters, none of the details that Jesus brings up are found in the original revelation of himself, presented to John back in Revelation 1. While all the other descriptions were designed in many ways to correct problems or provide certain encouragements, it may be that Jesus, why this is unique, is he's emphasizing an aspect of himself that in the end is really only relevant and applicable to the faithful church. Look at it again. Jesus begins his introductions. He says, these things says he who is holy. He who is holy. This translation is actually one Greek word, who is holy. It means most holy, as holy as it gets. See, in this description, Jesus is emphasizing to his church his unique distinctiveness. 
Because Jesus is holy. He is by definition separate from all others. He's separate from the world. He's different than everything else. He is completely and absolutely unique. Jesus continues by also describing himself as he who is true. He who is holy, he who is true. Again, this is one word in the Greek used to describe the opposite of that which is fictitious or counterfeit. In this reference, Jesus is emphasizing to the faithful church his genuineness and authenticity. <laughs> you know, in, in a world that is full of, of imitations and cheap knockoffs, things that promise one thing but fall short in delivering, friend, Jesus is the real deal. He's authentic. Lastly, Jesus refers to himself as he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now, in this direct quote from Isaiah 22, verse 22, we understand that the key of David, the key, represented authority. Again, in the context of Isaiah, the authority of really the chief steward in Israel. In this detail, Jesus is emphasizing to the faithful his complete authority over all, over heaven and earth. He is the one who has the key. He has the authority. He has the right. He opens. No one can shut. And when he shuts, no one can open. Jesus wants his church to know right from the beginning that he is distinct, holy, genuine, true, and he has complete authority or he's sovereign over all. Let's look at his commendation. Verse 8. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Well, we know very little <clears throat> about this ancient church in Philadelphia. You have to say, man, what a wonderful adulation. Like unique to this local body of believers, this church had taken advantage of the incredible opportunity Jesus had given them to impact their world, their city, with the gospel. Towards the end of our study, I'm going to expound on these things in a bit more detail. But please know that Jesus had set before them an open door that no one could shut, and this church had been faithful to maximize their opportunities and their community. They used the little strength that they had wisely. These believers in this church, they had been obedient to keep His Word. And in the face of opposition, their witness had not wavered at all. The way that they were living had not denied His name. It's not an accident that this faithful church was located in a city named for brotherly love. You know, over and over and over again in the New Testament, the writers, the apostles, the leaders would encourage the church over and over and over again to have a Philadelphia-style brotherly love for one another. In fact, the, the word Philadelphia, brotherly love, pops up from time to time. In Romans 12, verse 10, Paul would say, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, Philadelphia, and giving preference to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, concerning brotherly love. You have no need that I should write to you, for you are taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. 1 Peter 1.22, since you have been purified, since you have had your, purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brother and brotherly love, love one another fervently 
with a pure heart. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, for this very reason, given all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love, Philadelphia. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus would say, In John 13, verse 35, he says, By this one thing, you, my followers, will be known by the world that you're my disciples. He says, if you have love one for another. This church had this love. They loved each other. They loved one another. On account of this church, their love, their faithfulness, Jesus makes some very specific and and really awesome promises. Look at verse 9. He says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. In his letter to the persecuted church, Jesus mentions the synagogue of Satan. He he says that it was filled with this group who say that they're Jews but are not but lie. He now adds that their doctrine amounted, amounted to blasphemy. For the second time, Jesus mentions this synagogue. Not only was it located in in Smyrna, but it's located in Philadelphia, and it seems here to be responsible for whatever the persecution that these Christians were experiencing. And what was the persecution? They were spreading lies and slander, ridicule in their community. And what amounts to a specific promise targeted to this local church Jesus promises to deal directly with the problem. Again, look at it. He says, I will come. I will come. I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Like, like no, <laughs> the phrase to worship before your feet, it doesn't mean that, that these Jews, like Jesus is going to make these Jews come and worship the Christians. No, the word, it describes instead kind of the prostrating of oneself in order to pay homage. Like the idea is that they would come and, and express respect in light of this we understand that the phrase before your feet signified the act of of really a disciple yielding himself to the instruction of a teacher what jesus is saying is that at some point and through his direct involvement their enemy would be converted in a much broader application for the missional church jesus is promising to those who carry the gospel through the open door that even when it comes to their staunchest enemies, even even they will ultimately see the error in their thinking and be converted. he's, He's telling this church, and we see example after example after example of this historically, but even when opposition looks great and the gospel doesn't seem like it's going to prevail, Jesus' work would be greater. Yes, the journey may be difficult, But Jesus wants this church that has a a heart for the lost and a mission's mind to know that the world will come one day to see how deeply He loved them. But that's not all that Jesus promises. He continues, verse 10. He says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Because of their obedience and perseverance, Jesus promises these believers that he'd keep them 
from the hour of trial, a specific hour of trial, that would come upon the whole world. Now, for starters, this is a great example of, of the dual interpretation of these letters being applicable to a movement within church history as opposed to being addressed to a local body of believers that will, honestly wouldn't make any sense. Like Jesus is clearly promising to keep this church, this faithful church, from a judgment that would be global in scope. In fact, the use of the definite article, the hour, implies that Jesus is not speaking of any type of localized persecution, but of something that would indeed come upon the whole earth. And as a simple fact of, again, world history, at no point since Noah's flood have we ever seen such a global divine judgment. We've seen localized judgments, but not global in scope. As such, we're really left to only see this particular trial as still needing a yet future fulfillment. It should also be pointed out that this specific trial, why, why does it come? Well, Jesus says that it, it intends to test those who dwell on the earth. The word dwell is, is an interesting word because it spoke more of just like living in a place, but inhabiting an area. Additionally, every single time that this Greek phrase, those who dwell in the earth, is used in the book of Revelation, it always speaks of the unbelieving world. It's never once used to describe or even include Christians. See, it's evident from the text that Jesus is promising to remove, to keep them from, to remove the faithful church from the earth before the trial designed to test the unbelieving world begins. This promised deliverance would also explain why Jesus then exhorts them with the admonition, Behold, I am coming quickly. Not only is Jesus promising to come before the trial, but the word quickly implies His coming would occur suddenly when it finally does happen. Verse 12, Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who overcome, or those who remain faithful till his coming, Jesus promises first that he would make them a pillar and the temple of his God, and he shall go out no more. Like the idea here of being made a pillar, specifically in the temple of God, spoke about being given a permanent, unmovable position in heaven. Like for the faithful, the day will come when you'll be given a home. A home in heaven, a home with him that you'll never, ever, ever have to leave. Jesus adds that, he says, I will write on him the name of my God, which spoke of possession. You write your name on something you possess. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which, which spoke of citizenship, which comes down, he adds, out of heaven from my God. He says, I will write on him my new name, which means that you'll be given also a new identity. How glorious, Christian, to know that our destiny is simple. Like one day God is going to take possession of his own. But not only that, we will also, you and I, be made citizens of heaven, of a coming kingdom. And more than that, we'll be given a new identity 
in Christ Jesus that will last for all of eternity. Jesus closes his letter exhorting these believers to, quote, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Kind of an interesting phrase here. Keep in mind, first and foremost, that in, in referencing our crown, like Jesus is speaking about something specific. Uh, we'll see this in later chapters. But what Jesus is referring to by mentioning our crown is, is he's talking about our heavenly rewards. Rewards given for our faithfulness and our service and our works. Jesus is not, in referencing a crown, referring to our eternal security. With that in mind, we don't need to hold fast what we have out of some fear that someone might come along and take that away. Take away our crown. Rather, Jesus is encouraging the faithful when given the open door, go through it. Hold fast. Don't deny. Don't discard the opportunities that I'm setting before you. That's what he's saying. The open door. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm opening doors for you. Hold fast what you have, that no one may come in and take or steal away your reward given for that service. Meaning, if you don't take advantage of these opportunities and the potential reward that would come with them, I will extend them to someone else. You know, in light of these glorious promises, there is no question, every church, including Calvary 316, and, and really every Christian, should want to be identified with this Philadelphian church. I mean, when you read through all of the letters, this is the one, if it's referring to a church, we want to be a part of. I mean, how could you not? No criticisms at all, but only glorious promises? I'll take that, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to have the Savior, God, King, the man, Christ Jesus, examine their church or examine their life and reach these type of conclusions? And yet, don't forget that the letter was not written in a vacuum. You know, after evaluating this church, and remember, Jesus, acting as our high priest, chapter 1, he has the seven stars in his hand, his right hand, speaking of authority. And what is he doing? He's walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which are these seven churches. He's evaluating them. He is the pastor over them. He sees all. He perceives eyes of fire. He evaluates this church, and then Jesus declares to this church in Philadelphia, he says, you're faithful. Why? <laughs> because they had been faithful. <laughs> like this church was faithful because they were faithful. Like they had as part of their very DNA characteristics that Jesus didn't criticize but found commendable. Characteristics that truthfully should be a part of every church or Christian. If you want Jesus to also declare you to be faithful. Like in fact, it was on account of these things that Jesus had provided them the open door to begin with. When you're faithful over little, I'll make you faithful over much. You know, in way of applying the substance of this letter to our church, to you and I, for I mean, we want to be found faithful, right? So the, the application. To do this, I, I want to take our time, our remaining time, and I want to kind of reverse, like de deconstruct it all again. I want to go back to Jesus' initial com commendation in order to quickly establish a profile, 
a profile of what a faithful church looks like and, and specifically what a faithful Christian looks like. He, individually, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches, not just this one church. If we want our church to be faithful, we need things as part of our DNA. If we want to be found faithful, we need characteristics found as part of our DNA, the DNA of our faith. First, it's clear from this letter that a faithful Christian looks for ministry opportunities. Again, Jesus begins his letter. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. Like in context to all that he's saying, this open door was open for two reasons. One, Jesus opened it in response to their faithful service. I know your works. See, I've opened a door. Because I know your works, because of your faithfulness, because of the things you've been doing, I open this door for you. And two, because Jesus had opened it, no one could shut it. Like, in a sense, Jesus is commending this church for taking advantage of the opportunities, great and small, that he had placed in front of them. They not only recognized the opening, the opportunity, but they've proven faithful to seize upon that opportunity. And again, what opportunity had Jesus provided this church? Like looking at the backdrop of this church in Philadelphia as being an outpost for the spread of Hellenistic Greek culture and within the context of, of the missional church, the open door that Jesus is referencing here was the opportunity for his kids, for his followers, for his disciples to be missionaries of his kingdom throughout the entire world. An application to you and me? The open door? Well, friend, it's whatever opportunity for ministry that Jesus has given you. In Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul mentions the importance of such an open door. He asks the believers to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying for us also that God would open to us a door for the, for the Word, to speak the mysteries of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Like, I hope you understand that when it comes to sharing the gospel, or when it comes to opportunities to minister to someone else in need, it isn't your job to open doors. And that should come as a great relief. It's not your job to open doors. That job is left for Jesus. In actuality, I have found, really discovered, that anytime you try to kick down a door, you'll be really disappointed with what you find on the other side. Like instead, if, if in trying to make things happen, make ministry happen, instead of that, if you want to be found faithful, like your job isn't to be kicking down doors, but looking for the doors that Jesus is opening for you. And then what else? Once you see the opportunity, be willing to walk through those doors and seize them. Secondly, a faithful Christian also depends on the Holy Spirit. Jesus commends this church, look at it again, for what? For having a little strength. You know, it would be very easy to see this as kind of one of those backhanded compliments. 
But in actuality, this may be one of the greatest commendations that Jesus gives to any of the churches. Like the reality was that this church was weak enough to know that their entire strength had to be found in Jesus. Like for this church, they were very aware of their own insufficiency. There was no room for self-sufficiency. In his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul writes pretty eloquently about this issue. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. In a second letter to the Corinthians chapter 12 verse 10, he adds, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, adding, For when I am weak, then I am strong. In fact, we have example after example after example of Jesus taking the weak things of the world to accomplish great things. Men like Gideon. Or, or how about David? When Samuel goes to the family of Jesse to find the, the, the king, David's not even included in, in the, the list, of, list of sons his dad brings out. He was the runt, the smallest. No one thought God could use him. Understand, instead of calling the equipped, more often than not, God prefers to equip the inadequate. Which should come as great encouragement to all of us, right? You see, don't ever buy the lie that God can't use you to accomplish amazing things just because you lack some, some charismatic trait you feel that way, you're likely in for a surprise. God intentionally likes to use the things no one expects because it demonstrates His power for Him to receive the glory. Christian, the key to your faithfulness is not found in your strength or resiliency, but rather the key to your faithfulness is found in your dependency upon the Holy Spirit for His strength and sufficiency. In Zechariah 4, verse 6, we're told, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Like in the end, the issue never centers upon the amount of strength that you might have, but the source of that strength. You see, a little strength placed into the right source will prove to be more than enough. True faithfulness is only found, my friend, when you rely on Jesus' sufficiency in the place of your insufficiency, His ability to fill the chasm, the great chasm of your inability. 2 Corinthians 3.5 Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Paul says that Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, it's a sad thing, but there are many people in this world, many people in the church, who are simply too able for God to use them in any type of tangible way. You see, pride in oneself, pride in one's ability, pride in human ingenuity, it robs a person of the supernatural the world-changing, the life-altering power 
that can only come from placing your little strength in the Holy Spirit. This church was faithful and effective for one reason. They were totally self-aware and therefore humble. They had a proper perspective of themselves. They were aware of their inability. You might say their unableness made them very able to rely entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit to seize the opportunities before them. Thirdly, a faithful Christian centers their life on the Word of God. Again, look at verse 8. Jesus commends them for doing what? For keeping His Word. The Word has kept, in the Greek, it doesn't mean like to obey, but to attend to carefully. Like it wasn't that this Philadelphian church was faithful to be obedient to God's Word, which I'm sure they were, but Jesus is commending them more specifically for how they approached His Word. It was more of an attitude. Never forget this key point. Historically, revival never happens. And a church, a movement, a person, apart from a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what brings about the revival. And yet, what many people fail to observe is that the singular thing that brings about the moving of God is a return to the unashamed, unapologetic teaching of his word. And again, the history of the church, there has never been, been an outpouring of God's Spirit, an awakening, a revival, a moving that wasn't first initiated by a return to the study and care, the keeping of God's word. The same is true in your life and for our church. This church in Philadelphia, as we see in the missional church movement, experienced a great awakening brought on by the Spirit. A return to the Great Commission. Why? Because they also were faithful to preach the Word of God to the people. You see, the Word of God in the Philadelphian and missional church was central. Famous preacher Charles Spurgeon said this concerning God's Word. Quote, If you wish to know God, you must know His Word. If you wish to perceive His power... You must see how, his, how He worketh by His Word. If you wish to know His purpose before it is actually brought to pass, you can only discover it by His Word. Now, mark this. By this shall you know whether you are a child of God or not. By the respect that you have for your Father's Word. If you have small respect for the Word, the evidences of a bastard are upon you. End quote. Fourth, a faithful Christian is known by their love. Again, the Church of Philadelphia, brotherly love. As we noted, Jesus commends them for not denying His name. Like here was a missions-minded church, a church dependent on the Holy Spirit, a church that held God's Word in high esteem. And yet the idea behind this phrase, not denying, it's more than just making a decision to stand for Christ in the face of opposition. No, no, no. The idea being articulated is that it was through their actions that they were living up to the high standard of the name for which they represented. They embodied the name. They were Christians. And how did people know that? By their love for each other. Like the name. The name meant something to this church. It's 
It was significant. It was separating. It separated them from the rest of the world. They were Christians, followers of Christ. And and really, can you think of any other Christ-like attribute to demonstrate other than love? God is love. Christian, if you're to be found faithful, it's paramount you take seriously the name for which you represent. And you need to love one another. Like your actions as as a Christian and the way you treat other people doesn't just reflect on you, it reflects on Jesus, the name you carry. Like Jesus is standing and our community rests on the way that we represent Him. And how, how truly sad it is that so many of the misconceptions the world has of, of Jesus exists. Why? Because of the way that Christians so poorly represent Him. Finally, a faithful Christian perseveres. In verse 10, Jesus says, You have kept my command to persevere. It seems likely in the context of this promise to keep them from the hour of of trial which shall come upon the whole world, Jesus was referencing a perseverance in the face of an opposition. Again, the key to unpacking the deeper lesson is to put this commendation into the context of this ancient city as well as the missional church. Philadelphia was the final outpost between Rome, the Roman world, and the barbarians to the east. And as such, Philadelphia had to constantly defend against infiltration. She existed to impact the world beyond and not vice versa. And in much the same way, the key to being a good missionary, a good Christian, is yes, to build a bridge with the culture you want to influence without compromising in any way the message or the name. Please understand, faithfulness requires the willingness to persevere in the face of opposition. It demands faithfulness. It demands tenacity to stand for the truth. Like even if if such a position goes against the tide of popular opinion. Faithfulness necessitates the simple acceptance that following Jesus will indeed draw the ire of the world and will ultimately result in a persecution for your beliefs. And it's in such instances that you have a choice. The faithful Christian perseveres. As we'll see next Sunday, the lukewarm compromises. I hope that it's your sincere prayer to hear of Jesus one day, and hopefully soon, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want to hear Jesus utter those words to you? I know I do. There are no more glorious words than that you will ever hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not about accomplishment, it's about faithfulness. It's not about what you do or what you rack up on a ledger. It's about being faithful with whatever open door he places, no matter how small or big it might be. Faithfulness is the currency of heaven. And yet understand the only way that you can hear of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant, is for you to be a good and faithful servant. Again, Jesus evaluates this church and he determines that they were faithful because they were faithful. Friend, to be found faithful by Jesus 
like this church in Philadelphia, this ancient church, and the missional church she represents, it's paramount that you're willing to walk through the doors that Jesus opens. You know, He wants to open doors for you this week. Simple things, conversations, an opportunity to be an encourager, to uplift, to provide a kind word. Like, you've got to be willing. You don't kick doors down. You don't create opportunities. You look for them. And when they're there, you walk through them. It's paramount you do that to be found faithful. It's also essential that you remain solely dependent on the Holy Spirit. God doesn't ask for you to be super able, but super willing to take that little strength and place it in the great God that has your back. Jesus is looking for the humble He's looking to use the weak things of this world to work through in mighty, mighty ways. It's also essential if you're to be faithful that you keep God's Word at the center of your life. That you safeguard it, that you cherish cherish it, that you, you work your way through it and let it work its way through you. No revival, no awakening, no moving happens apart from God's Word. And it's important that you take seriously your calling to represent Jesus in all that you do. That you would not deny the name, that you would uphold the name in the way that you live, and specifically, your brotherly love. That you would love others. And man, if you want to know the context of that love, Jesus says, love your enemies. Love. And if you're to be faithful, when faced with persecution, May you prove to be willing to persevere and not compromise. Even if your faith costs something. Again, Jesus closes the letter. This is not some theoretical exercise. It's not something for some ancient church. He says, he who has an ear. It's you, it's me, let him hear. With the Spirit. Not Zach, but what the Holy Spirit through the written word says, is saying presently, actively, right now, to the churches. So, Father, Lord, that's what we ask. This week, provide us open doors and fill us with your Spirit and help us be faithful. We love you. We thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you for the doors you'll open in the future and we have the faith to walk through them. In Jesus' name, the church said, Amen.